looking for my microphone there. Uh, good morning. Thank you so much for reading that for us this morning, Wayne. I really appreciate it. Um, as Kyle said, we've been going through the parables of Jesus. And some of the parables seem to key up with one another a little bit better than other parables. If you remember last week, uh, Kyle spent some time talking about the parable uh, that comes just before this, as a matter of fact. It all takes place. Jesus tells two parables in a single setting. Uh, he's been invited into a Pharisee's house to eat and, and dine with them. And there's this theme of, of honor and shame about who belongs at the front of the table, about who belongs at the foot of the table, about presuming your own seat at the table. And then in this second parable, Jesus suggests that there are those who have been graced with an invitation, who decline the invitation, and those who were uninvited that receive an invitation at the last minute and gladly accept it. Now, I think that it's interesting as we read through these two parables, what we end up seeing is that it's sort of an inversion of the way we generally think about things. When we arrive at another person's house and we, uh, we uh, are a guest, we usually don't presume where we're going to sit at the table. Uh, we, we take the seat that is uh, offered to us or the one that's uh, the most convenient. Uh, we don't think necessarily of the head of the table and the foot of the table anymore. Um, I have uh, a group of young adults that come over to my house every Friday night, and uh, we, we spend some time studying the Bible. We eat a meal together. Um, at no point did I ever tell any of them where they belonged around our dinner table. It just never occurred to me. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't show up every week and take the exact same seat that they took the week before because human beings are creatures of habit. But we never once suggested, you know, this is where Maddie belongs. This is where Lydia belongs. This is where Connor belongs. This is where Connor number two belongs. That's, they refer to themselves as Connor and Connor number two, by the way. Uh, but I, I, I think it's really interesting that in our culture, the idea of who belongs at a seat at the table the head or the foot, the place of honor and distinction, or the place of, hey, I'm just happy to be here, um, we, don't, we don't have that strong a concept of how that works. It's just kind of foreign from our mind. We might have a very clear image of who belongs at the table, period, but not so much an idea of where they're going to sit. Uh, sometime in the last 40 or 50 years, I think that sort of became a, a less common thing for, you know, maybe dad to have the head of the table and, you know, mom right at his left or right hand side and then the children, depending on the size of your table, half a mile away or, you know, clear, close by you. Um, but this second parable, the idea of creating a guest list, I, I don't think that that's that foreign to us. In fact, um, most of us have had the opportunity to create our own guest lists before. Some of us have not had that distinction, but, but many of us have. And I thought, while we're on the subject of guest lists this morning, I, I want to tell you a little bit about uh, an opportunity I had to put together a guest list. I had to pull this out. Um, this is Lorenda and I's wedding invitation. Uh, it's, it's 
very dusty at this point. I literally had to dust the invitation to be able to show it off. But when we got married, uh, one, of the, one of the ministers at the Eastside Church of Christ in Portland and his wife were kind enough to take our invitation and create a little shadow box for us. And so we kind of, we have this around all the time. Um, when we sent these out, we put a lot of thought into who we'd send them to. We, we considered very carefully our budget for our wedding, uh, who we could afford to, to, you know, make sure it was there. If we had a, a thousand people, there was no way we were going to have enough cake and coffee because you noticed we weren't serving food because we were poor, broke college students. Uh, we, we invited the people that we wanted most to be there. We invited family members, but we also made some tactical decisions in issuing invitations. I don't know if you've ever thought about the tactical deployment of wedding invitations before. Uh, I've done a lot of premarital counseling and I've had the opportunity to suggest to people, no, you should definitely invite these people even if there's no way that they show up, right? Um, when you send out an invitation, you're telling someone you know, I, I care enough about you to want you to know, first of all, that the event is happening. Secondly, I want you to know that I'd like for you to be there. Or third, I don't think that there's any way you're going to show up, but if I didn't send you an invitation, there would be some serious business between the two of us, right? Um, we had a few of those tactical invitations that we sent out. Um, we sent out invitations to people that we hoped would come, but did not show up. Some of them under, you know, reasonable circumstances. They were, uh, you know, having to travel a great distance. It was not particularly easy for them to travel. Some people had genuine medical situations that prevented them from traveling and being with us. There were a lot of reasons that a person might not have shown up to our wedding, uh, not the least of which was, you know, uh, the goofy guy in the tux, right? Um, I still think, I, I look at our wedding pictures and I find it uh, miraculous that Lorinda married that guy. Um, goofy looking goatee on his face and shabby hair and kind of a baby face still. Um, what I thought was interesting though about it is that the people who came, the people who RSVP'd, the people who told us, hey, we're gonna be there, Every time that we received an acceptance of our invitation, it meant something to us. There were people that surprised us by their, their willingness and their desire to be there uh, because maybe they were people we hadn't spoken to for several years. Uh, in some cases, they were family members that we thought had become uh, disconnected from the rest of the family but showed up. There were a couple of disappointments there were people that I had hoped would show up that did not. I, I'll tell you this morning, a large portion of my dad's side of the family just completely disregarded that I was getting married that day. They did the same thing to my brother a couple of years ago. And it hurt. When we send an invitation, we are communicating to someone a desire for them to be there. And in the context of the parable, in the context that Jesus finds himself in, there, there is a clear teaching that comes before the parable. And that doesn't often happen. Sometimes Jesus drops a parable in the middle of a conversation and we're asking ourselves, where did this come from? What does this have to do with the context that Jesus finds himself in? And only after, if even then, 
does Jesus provide the context for the parable, an explanation specifically and privately to his disciples. But he begins in this particular case with an explanation to the man who is sitting at the table with him, who has invited him into his own home. He said also to the man who had invited him. I'm not going to read the whole section here because uh, Wayne was kind enough to do that for us this morning. He's speaking to a specific individual. This individual is a person of notoriety within his own culture. He's a distinct person, a, a distinctive person. He has a role. He has a position. To have been invited into his house at the time would have been seen as a, um, an honor. Uh, to be invited into a teacher's home was an honor. More importantly, to have a teacher come and eat in your home was an honor, which is why uh, Zacchaeus doesn't decline Jesus, partly because uh, Jesus is also Jesus and Zacchaeus is overwhelmed to meet him in the first place. But to have a teacher come and dine in your home was a significant thing. A rabbi, someone who had uh, a grasp of scripture to such an extent as to be able to share it with others and potentially change society in some really significant ways. And Jesus was clearly doing all of that. And so for this Pharisee to invite Jesus into his home, there's kind of a dual honor system going on here. Hey, you are honoring me by showing up and dining at my table, but I'm honoring you by recognizing you as someone worthy of honor. I want you to think about all of that for just a moment because this is then how Jesus replies to him. And he says, hey, you know, next time that you're putting together your guest list, I think there are some people you should leave off. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends. Jesus is sitting at this man's table and he's accepted the invitation and he tells him, by the way, don't invite your friends. I kind of, you know, thinking about it this week, is Jesus saying, don't assume that we've got that kind of relationship this morning? Uh, hey, you know, I came to your dining room table, and you're not supposed to invite your friends. What does that say about us? I don't think that's what Jesus is communicating. But I thought it was very, uh, an interesting leading point here. Do not invite your brothers, the people that you have familial relationship with, do not invite your relatives or rich neighbors. Jesus, in his list, immediately removes the people that seem like it would be most likely to invite into your home, your friends, your brothers, your relatives. And then he tacks on this last one. First of all, I don't know that I have any rich neighbors. If I did, um, I, would, I would want to presume to invite them over to my home and ingratiate myself to them. But... Jesus says, don't do that. The people that you are most likely to invite, don't invite them. I've always found that very interesting. The people that I would want to invite are the people that Jesus begins by saying, don't extend the invitation to them. I've struggled a long time with how, how specifically to apply that. We're going we're gonna to kind of come back around to that here in just a minute. But with the negative assertion, Jesus then moves to the positive assertion. But when you give a feast, 
invite the poor. Invite the crippled. Invite the lame. Invite the blind. It's interesting to me because, uh, again, I would never intentionally exclude any of these people from my guest list, but they would not, I, I wouldn't necessarily construct a guest list by saying, well, who are the poor people I know? Who are the blind people I know? Who are the lame people I know? Who are the crippled people I know? That's not necessarily how I construct my list. You know, it's like sitting down and, well, I was about to say inviting just the Giants fans in my life to come to my house. I might actually do that if we're going to watch a baseball game together because I don't want you rooting for the other team, right? But when we, when we put together our guest list, we usually don't get this specific in the kinds of people we're going to invite. We have specific people we plan to invite, but not kinds of people we might invite. The first group of people, are, are they're, they're, they're relationally based, right? Uh, your neighbors, who are wealthy, your brothers, your relatives, your friends. That's a relational list, and that's usually how we start by building our list of guests. But Jesus begins with specific innate qualities in a human being that they might possess that put them at a disadvantage. The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, these are descriptors of people, not relational descriptors. This is their situation in life not their relationship to you. And usually, our invitations are based on the relationship we already possess with a person. And Jesus is suggesting, I think, that we need to construct our list starting with those who have the greatest need, not with those that we are the fondest of. And I think that that's probably the thing I've struggled with understanding the most about this particular section of Scripture, this, this passage that Jesus has this interaction with this man, and he says, look, I want you to build your guest list based on those that need the feeding, not based on those that you think you're going to have the best time with. That's not how I plan a party. I don't know if anyone here has ever said, all right, I want to celebrate. I want to hold a banquet. I've got a lot of reason to celebrate. I've got superfluous stuff in my life, and I'd like to share it with other people. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to put together a guest list of people I don't really know, but I'm going to go find myself some blind, crippled, poor people and invite them into my home to celebrate whatever is going on in my life. Has anyone ever done that before? Because I've never done it before. But that's the advice that Jesus gives to this Pharisee. And he makes the point, he says, look, that first list of people, they have a way of repaying you. They have something to give you. Some way of saying, look, I'm not going to be enriched by you. I'm going to pay you back. The second list of people has nothing to give. You stand nothing to gain financially. You stand nothing to gain from a position of, of honor and shame within our culture. All you have is the opportunity to bless someone who has not. And then Jesus begins telling the parable. The words that he chooses are particularly interesting to me. A man once gave a banquet. Now keep in mind, 
he's not referring to the man that he's sitting at the, that he's been invited to the table of because the little section that came just before this is hey blessed is anyone who gets to eat at the feast in the kingdom of heaven and Jesus's response to him that man is to tell the parable of one who gives a great banquet a man once gave a great banquet and invited many and at the time for the banquet he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited come for everything is now ready I think we all know a little bit what that's like Michael and Julia recently had their wedding and and I'd imagine that on the day of you were so relieved that it was all done right uh, I, I guarantee you that when uh, the Strawns got married they were super excited that the day had arrived they were glad that they were getting married but they were also glad that all of the preparation was essentially done there's a huge sigh of relief the banquet is prepared we get to celebrate I know for my own wedding and this is you know reaching back a little bit here but I remember the day of although it was a whirlwind and I only had one bite of my wedding cake and I had nothing else to eat that day and we ended up being sick the next morning all of that aside I remember the relief that came with having our, our wedding done the preparation was over we had done all the work to have the guests we had put the decorations together the tuxes had been rented the dress was beautiful the bridesmaids were all there nobody said I, I have the flu and I can't be involved in your wedding it was wonderful it was extraordinary it was great we got to listen to music and we got to dance and we got to have this wonderful party that we got to celebrate a wonderful day that would be so important to us for the rest of our lives the relief that came with being able to say everything is now ready all that we need is you it was so wonderful a man once gave a great banquet and nobody showed up that's not quite true but they being the invitees all alike began to make Jesus doesn't say reasonable exceptions to the invitation they all began to make excuses I have bought a field <laughs> the funny thing about this is that if you have bought a field and you need to go examine that field you've probably done things in the wrong order right examine the field then buy the field but the man is I, I bought a field I need to go look at the property right this is this is an issue with you as an individual maybe not having been prepared for what was coming you bought something without looking at it and now you're using that as an excuse to dishonor the one who invited you the next person I have bought five yoke of oxen right uh, you're not supposed to look a gift horse in the mouth but the horse that you buy you're supposed to check out its mouth beforehand right the oxen that you buy these work animals you want to make sure that they are appropriate before you buy them I have bought five yoke of oxen okay so did you not consider the condition of those oxen before you purchased them and only now you're thinking to do this these are lousy excuses and I think Jesus has intentionally chosen lousy excuses here the next one is a little bit more uh, maybe we can relate to it I have married a wife okay 
that's a pretty reasonable excuse. If you just got married, you're probably going to be a little bit busy. You've got a honeymoon to go on and husbandly duties that you're going to see to and uh, a house that you need to tend to and all these things. But don't you think you can stop for a, an evening to come to the banquet, to the feast? Wouldn't your wife like to be able to come and celebrate along with you. Jesus is maybe suggesting here that he wasn't given a plus one? I don't know. Uh, but this man doesn't feel as though he can come to the banquet because he doesn't have... He doesn't have the freedom to do so because he's married now? They're poor excuses. I think if we look at them for any length of time, we can kind of shoot them down a little bit. Clearly, the invitation was sent ahead of time. Every one of these individuals could have taken the precautions or, or planned ahead or consulted their calendar to ensure that they'd be able to arrive. But what comes out of this is something that speaks to the heart of God. The man is furious with those who have denied his invitation. And he tells his servants, go and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. But there's still more room. I dare say, I dare say, um, that's like a colloquialism I don't think I usually use. I dare say, this second list of people is a larger list of people than the first list of people probably was. If you, if you look, there are three examples of people declining the invitation. They all make the excuse, you know, I, I have something better to do, something else that I need to attend to. I've found myself overcommitted and I just can't be there. There's three of them. Now, there might be a whole range of other excuses a person could give, but it doesn't seem like this particular list of invitees was that extensive. But here, what we end up seeing is, go invite this broad stroke, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Invite them in. And the servants reply, but there's still more room. The first list was not so large that it would have filled the room to begin with. Maybe maybe the host always intended to fill these seats with more than the people he had initially invited. It doesn't say that outright. I don't want to speculate too much, but I want to be really clear here. There is something going on where there is going to be enough room regardless of who accepts the invitation. But there's still more room. And then the master tells them this. Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Go out to the highways and the hedges. To us, that's a very strange statement, although we have a song in our songbooks that's uh, this song specifically, I'll be waiting for my Lord. Uh, it's also in O Brother Where Art Thou, although it's I'll be working for my Lord. I actually prefer working for my Lord rather than just waiting for my Lord. We can do both at the same time. This phrase, the highways and the hedges, seems pretty, I don't even know the right word for it. It doesn't seem all that controversial to us. 
But the highways and the hedges are the dangerous places. There were the thieves wait. There were the robbers hide. There are the places where the unwanted are waiting to pounce. This is where the criminals are found. Because the civilized people, they're all in the cities, but between the cities, it's a dangerous place to hide. In fact, if you think about it, the other parable that Jesus tells involving a highway is the story of the Good Samaritan. And what happens to the man in that story on the highway? He's robbed. The highways are not safe places. The hedges are the places where people are waiting to ambush. For Israelites, the idea of the highways and the hedges involved the foreigners. Those who don't belong. Those who don't have a place in the city. We've already invited the poor and the blind and the lame and the crippled. Let's also invite the unsavory element that dwells outside of the city. And as I read through this, the only thing I can think of is is a passage from Micah chapter 4. And I want to read that to you this morning, and then I want to kind of draw everything to a conclusion here. Micah chapter 4, it's it's not going to be up on your screen, but if you have your Bibles with you, you can open them and read them here, starting in verse 1. This is the reason that the book of Micah is high on my list of favorites. It's the reason I named my son Micah. This particular passage right here to me is the story of God's redemptive work for all of humanity, his work toward the redemption of the nations. This is God speaking to Israel saying, this is what I have longed to do through you and you have fought against me in this happening, but you can't fight against me forever. It shall come to pass in the later days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, through the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and his own fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken, for all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God. But we, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, and I want you to hear these words. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those who have whom I have afflicted, and the lame will make the remnant, and those who were cast off a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Who is it that God says is going to be the remnant? He says it's the lame. 
He says that those that are going to come and worship at his house are the nations. They're going to say to themselves, let us go up to the house of the Lord, the God of Jacob. There's going to be peace. That a time is coming when that will be the case, when the guest list, not just the guest list, but the household will be made up of the lame. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. The book of Micah dwells a lot on the idea that the Israelite people have struggled to accept what it is that God has offered to them. They make an awful lot of excuses about why they can't do the things that God has commanded, why they can't love mercifully those who are in an impoverished state, why it is that they, they have failed to do as God desires. But ultimately, God says that's, that's the way it's worked for you, but I will still triumph because there are those far off, those that you have neglected, that I will fill my table with. This morning I want to encourage you to consider your guest list. Who is it that belongs in your household? Who is it that belongs at the Newburgh Church of Christ? Who is it that belongs to the church, God's kingdom, his household? And if it's the people that are the most likely to be your guest list, your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbor, it might be time to change your guest list. Doesn't mean that God doesn't want those people to come and be a part of what it is that we are as the church, but who's going to actually receive the message of the good news of the invitation that God has offered to them? Sometimes I think we're aiming for a group of people that have a lot of opportunities to make excuses about, about why they just can't attend the banquet. In Deuteronomy, God tells the Israelite people, I'm about to give you a land that's filled with houses you didn't build and vineyards you didn't plant and olive trees you didn't grow yourselves and you will be joyful in them and you will celebrate and you will eat to your full. And then just a couple chapters later he says, but there will come a time when you're living in those houses and eating from those fields and filling your stomachs that you will forget me. You'll forget the one that even invited you into the banquet. And at that time, I will cast you out. But I won't forget you. I'll bring you back. We're going to study that this summer, actually. We're going to go through the book of Deuteronomy, so I won't spend more time preaching on that. In fact, I'm about to wrap us up. But I want to tell you this morning that God has constantly and continually told people sometimes when we get too comfortable, we don't have time for his invitation. And the people who are probably most likely to accept the invitation are those who are the least comfortable in this world. Maybe that means we should make ourselves a little less comfortable. Maybe it means that we should find those who are already uncomfortable. And we should be extending the invitation to them to sit around God's table. That's all I have for us this morning. I, I want to tell you, though, if you are someone who finds yourself uncomfortable in this world, God is extending his invitation to you. 
you are someone that God wants to honor by bringing you to his table. He wants to put you at the front of the table even. Don't presume that seat for yourself, but let God bring you to the front of the table. If you are someone who is very comfortable, it might be time to make yourself uncomfortable in some pretty significant ways so that you might actually feel as though, hey, I don't have it all together. I don't need to go see this piece of property. I don't need to go see the, the recent car that I just purchased for myself after having purchased it. What I need to do is I need to accept the invitation that God has given me and spend some time eating the food that he's got for me, for my spiritual nourishment. Whatever it is that you need this morning, I'd, I want to walk alongside you in that. Our elders want to walk alongside you in that. We want to bless and encourage you to help you understand how you can sit at the table of God, how you can find yourself a guest in a household that you really probably don't belong in, but the, the, the host is happy to have you there. I want to encourage you to ask yourself, do I feel as though I belong at the table? And if the answer is no, that might actually be a better answer than yes. <laughs> to presume that we belong at the table means that maybe we're a little too comfortable and we feel like it's an invitation we can shirk. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we are sometimes just too comfortable in this world. And we find ourselves distracted and entertained by uh, the possessions, uh, the positions, the uh, entertainment that is all around us. And we find ourselves pushing away the invitation that you've given to us. So, Father, we pray this morning that you make us uncomfortable. That you put us in a position where we rely on you more. We rely on ourselves less. That we can be less distracted by our monetary wealth, and we can be more entranced by the invitation to the banquet table. And Father, we pray that we, we rearrange our expectations, that we rethink our list of who belongs and who doesn't, not because you would reject anyone who would come to the banquet, but because, Father, there is always more room. We pray this morning that we would find so many so many who need a place to sit and that we would bring them to the table together. It's all this that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand as we continue our worship this morning.